Our Father, as we study this morning, we pray again, claiming the promise of your Spirit to be the one to speak to each one of us and through us. To your name be glorified, in Jesus' name, amen. Relative to this subject is the subject of trying to find the true church. Now, I do not know if you realize that presently there are 39,000 Christian denominations. How many? 39,000 Christian denominations. If you look at the chart, you'll see that in the 1800s, there were 500 different Christian denominations. By 1900, there were 1,900. By 1970, you, you see the exponential growth from 1,900 to how much? 8,700 in 1970. So in 70 years, the Christian denominations grew by about 17,000 more. By the mid 2000s, again, it almost doubled and uh, it slowed down by the year 2008. Slowed down to 39,000. You can well understand why it is that people are having difficulty with church. Finding a church. And when you consider that there are 39,000, it becomes even more challenging. Especially when you realize that there's only how many books? One. Only one Bible, and out of one Bible you get 39,000. Now, how does that figure out? So people many times are called church hoppers. How many of you have heard that term before? Church hoppers. And the reason why some people do church hopping is because they're trying to find what they consider to be the true one, the real one. Others just church hop because they like something called smuggers board, where you can go and get a little here and a little there and a little here and a little there. But now, whereas before you only had a few choices, now you have 39,000 choices. And it takes you more than several lifetimes to go through that smuggers board and figure out which one is the right one. However, in the scriptures, uh, God does not seek to make it so complex or so difficult that people cannot find the way to salvation. And so, uh, Jude, verse 1 from chapter 1, says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly do what? Contend for the what? The faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Obviously, according to the Bible, there's how many faiths? One faith. But according to what we just read, in the, in the statistics, there are how many? 39,000. So from one faith, now you have 39,000. But it was not always the case. And I want you to know that as far as the Bible is concerned, the Bible is clear. There's only one. 
How many? There's only one. Now, you can argue and you can say, well, preacher, you're arrogant because, you know, uh, all roads lead to Rome. However, I should let you know that Rome is not the kingdom of God, nor is it heaven. Rome is something set up by men, and God's salvation is not to be determined by a center point in a place called uh, the Vatican with seven hills. Rather, salvation is found in Christ. And Christ makes it plain that he has how many faiths? One faith. Therefore, it is uh, expedient, or should I say it is uh, urgent for us to discover which is the right one because from what we see in the world, things are winding up pretty fast. So, in the beginning, in Genesis, if you look at the book of the Bible, the Bible begins with two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, and you say, well, that's obvious, preacher. Well, it also ends with two chapters, 21 and, and 22. But I want you to know this, that the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible are mirror images. In other words, in the first chapter and chapter 2, you will find that there's a perfect world, a perfect home, a perfect relationship between man and God, a perfect uh, food, perfect environment, everything is perfect. If you go to the last two chapters, what do you find? You find a perfect environment again. Man is back in perfection. He is with the perfect God, a perfect home, perfect food. Everything is perfect again. So you find a perfect world to begin with, and you find a perfect world to begin with again. Two perfect environments. Obviously, we're not in the first, and we're not in the, I won't call it the last, even though it will be the last. But we do not find it in the new, correct? So, we're not there, nor are we there. So, where are we? We're someplace in between. And the purpose of the Bible is to help you know, figure out, discover, learn, how you can get from the first two chapters to the last two chapters. So everything in the Bible is to get you from point A to point Z. Therefore, every teaching of Christ that Christ encourages, the basic tenets of his faith, you can find it in the first two chapters and you can find it in the last two chapters. In other words, in the first two chapters, there was no death. Is that true? In the last two chapters, there's no death. Is that true? All right. So, in the first two chapters, there's a perfect diet. Is that true? In the last two chapters, there's a perfect diet. Is that true? We know there's a tree of life in the first chapter. We know there's a tree of life in the, in the last chapter. And so... We can see then in the scriptures that God has a plan, which some people call it the plan of salvation. Others call it uh, the plan of redemption. Others call it the great controversy. But whichever term you use, it is to signify that God has a plan by which he's going to take you from the beginning to the new beginning. I like that. What do you say? 
I'm glad it doesn't say from the beginning to the end. Because God doesn't have an end for his children. God has a new beginning for his children. We say amen to that. So, how do you get there? Now, in the beginning, there was one faith. How many? One faith. The Lord has spoken to man, Adam, and his wife, and gave them the understanding that they needed to have in order to maintain a present relationship with their maker, a face-to-face communion with the maker. But something happened. Something went wrong, and sin came in. When sin came in, it divided that one faith, and it became two. So you have Abel, and you have Cain. Now you have how many? Two. One is following the way that God ordained it. The other one is following the way he dictated. Now speaking about Cain. So you have two separate faiths now, two divergent faiths. And when you come actually to the uh, chapter 6 of Genesis, you will find then that what's happening is that those two faiths have merged. Have what? Have merged. And the one faith that God gave that was to be maintained pure became polluted. But God always maintained the truth or that faith through those people who were called seed carriers. What were they called? Seed carriers. In other words, today we understand that, the, that, that whole idea of, of a carrier. You can be a carrier of some disease. Is that true? How many of you have ever been tested positive with tuberculosis? Any of you? You get the shot and it becomes kind of a reddish. Any of you have had that? All right. So you are a what? A carrier even though it has not manifested itself in you. So all of us are carriers. We're carriers of one thing, or we're carriers of another thing, or we're carriers of a multitude of things. But the God ordained then that that faith that God had entrusted to mankind would be carried from father to son to son to son to son through the generations. And that's particular faith had two elements that marked it as the genuine faith. How many? Two elements. One was faith, and the other one was obedience. How many? Two. Now, that's simple enough that a child can understand. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, then to trust and obey. So you have how many? Two. All those who identified as God's true believers showed themselves to be true believers by having genuine trust in God and showing that trust by their obedience. Always In the genuine seed carrier, you will find those two characteristics. All right? So, notice it says, because Abraham did what? Obeyed my voice and did what else? 
kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. By this time, there was nothing written about law, statutes, judgments, and commandments. So how did they know? It was verbal. That's correct. There was The truth was passed on by word of mouth, from mouth to mouth. And so the faith was kept alive by people living it and sharing it. So that Abraham was a person noted as a man who obeyed, but also he was noted as a man who had what? Faith. By faith, Abraham. Or we can say by trust, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, what did he do? He obeyed. So did he have the two qualities? What's the answer? Yes. He had faith. He trusted in God. And what else? He obeyed. Those two qualities that are essential. What did I say? They're essential for identification purposes. And during this time, while Abraham was faithful and obeying, there are other, so many other types of ideas or ideologies out there. So Abraham's faith was not the only one. There were others. So from Cain, it split into many. And the names of the different gods began to multiply. And people began to worship all sorts of things. Cows and, and frogs and dogs and cats and, and uh, inanimate objects. People began to think that uh, God was something they could make up in their minds. But God is not something you can make up in your mind. God is something that makes your mind up. And so the Bible makes it plain then that the carriers of the true faith are traced, and that's why you have those long lists of genealogy. In other words, in the book of Luke, it has the longest list. It takes you all the way from Christ all the way to Adam, who was a son of God. In Matthew, it takes you uh, through the genealogy of Christ, and uh, in uh, Hebrew as well. It gives you a whole list of the faithful. So the purpose of these lists is to let you know that God did not miss a moment that he lost track of the seed carriers. He always traced his true believers throughout history. And so they were being traced from the time that Jesus made the statement about the seed in Genesis 3.15. And that seed had to be traced all the way through because your hope and my hope your salvation and my salvation, and the salvation of the whole world, centered upon finding the right seed. And that's why in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there are 333 prophecies that had to be fulfilled by the Messiah. How many? 333 prophecies. Now, to help you to understand the significance of that, to fulfill 48 prophecies. How many? To fulfill 48 prophecies, the probability that any individual could fulfill that 
would be 1 to the 157th power. I don't know if you understand what that means. I'll simplify it. The chances that a person can satisfy, fulfill 48 prophecies is one chance in 157, which you take 10 and you put 157 zeros to it, and that's the chances. Well, let me simplify it this way. If you take the state of Texas and you fill the state of Texas two feet deep with silver quarters, how high? And I'm using Texas because they boast about that they are the biggest something. Right? They have big rabbits and they have big this and big that. Texas. You take Texas, you fill it with two, two feet of silver coins, all right? Silver quarters. And you take one silver quarter and mark it. How many? Mark. One, you mark it. And then you pitch it someplace in the state of Texas filled with two feet of silver quarters and then blindfold somebody and ask them in one pick to find it. What would be the chances? Chances would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. That's the chances. Okay? God did that to guarantee you and me that when we find the true Messiah, we find salvation. And God did that to also let you know that there would be a lot of attempts by the enemy to fabricate or make decoys so that people would put their faith in the wrong place thinking that they're secure only to discover in the final land that they're lost. So you must place your faith in the right Messiah. You hear what I'm saying? You can't just place it in any Jesus. You must place it in the Jesus. And that D Jesus had to satisfy how many prophecies? Not 48. He had to fulfill how many? 333. I already told you the other, other impossibility for one to satisfy only 48. Now, from Moses then, pardon me, from Adam to Moses, God traced his genuine faith. From Adam to Moses to Christ, God traced the genuine faith. And so when Jesus came, he came to bring attention back to the faith that had been delivered to Adam at the beginning. And even though the Jews had their different ideas about salvation, and then the Romans and the Greeks and so on, even in the days of Christ, there was only one true faith. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She said, you Samaritans don't know what you worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, if somebody were to say that to you today, you'd think, well, that's arrogant. But it was not about arrogance. It was about truth. Christ was not being arrogant. Christ was trying to help people understand that their salvation was not dependent upon finding a well that you can get water from that was dug by some ancestor. Your salvation had to be dependent upon the living Christ. And that's why he said, the days will come when those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, so Christ then reestablished 
what he had given to the people in the beginning. And through him, you could trace the truth all the way back to Adam. The one faith that had trust and what else? And obedience. Christ then entrusted that genuine faith to his disciples, who later became the apostles. These apostles then were given the task of recommitting and uh, enlightening the people to that faith that only saves. And when Paul went to preach in Athens to the Greeks, he tried to match ideology with ideology, philosophy with philosophy. And he didn't succeed. And then he woke up to the reality that if he was going to save people, he had to bring them not to ideologies, but to a living Savior. And that's why he said to them, I will preach no longer anything but Christ and him crucified. He failed. If you read the council, you'll discover that he recognized that he did not succeed by matching or using philosophy to come back philosophy. He succeeded when he stuck to sharing with people where salvation was found and in whom they could find it. And that was in Christ Jesus. So, the apostolic faith then began to spread throughout Rome. And by God's grace, many people, even in Caesar's palace, began to turn to the genuine faith, even though there were many gods, many faiths, etc. It's tantamount to you today as an Adventist, going and preaching around and people saying, what do you think, you're holier than anybody else? You think that your church is the only way that's going to get to heaven? And then they make up a little story. It's like there was a group going around touring in heaven, and finally they came to one group, and the angel said, shh. And the people said, why? said, because those are the Adventists. They think they're the only one in heaven. So they, they come up and create all of these things, these stories, to, to, to try to let people think that you can find salvation in all denominations. And let me say this. While it is true that God in mercy has his people everywhere. Did you hear what I said? While it is true, that's correct. It is also true that ultimately there will only be one faith. How many? One faith. There will not be 2,000 or 3,000, 39,000 different faiths entering into the kingdom. That it's not going to be. God did not say that that will take place. And so, the scripture makes it plain then that you have one living faith. Now, going back to the apostolic faith, when the apostolic faith uh, was ushered and they began to make inroads into all the other divergent different ideologies out there, the disciples were dying off. And uh, finally, Paul wrote to the believers and said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing what? The flock. I want you to notice that Paul did not say flocks. What did he say? 
the flock, which means that he understood there were how many flocks? There was only one flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. God established a genuine faith in the beginning. It got splintered. God brought it back together in the people of Israel. The people of Israel failed to do their work. The faith became splintered. Christ came, reunited it, gave it to the apostles. They began to preach it. And after the apostles died, the faith became splintered. So the attempt of the enemy was to make it so that to find the genuine faith would be like finding a needle in a haystack. So, what would happen to that genuine faith? All of us are acquainted with Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 17. There are two women. One that represents the genuine faith of Christ, standing upon the moon, symbolic of the moons, the types of shadows of the Old Testament, clothed with the sun, symbolized by clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and the crown of 12 stars, symbolizing the 12 messengers of the gospel. And so a church that comes in a pure way to the world. That is the apostolic church that Christ established. You can read that in chapter 12 where it says that the child was to be born and that child was caught up unto God to his throne. Then the, since that church was making inroads into all manner of paganisms and all manner of ideologies, the devil did everything possible to destroy it. He couldn't. So he decided in order to make sure that it wasn't as effective as it was, he decided to try to put things in it to make it so that it had no power to save. Unfortunately, that happened. But God kept his eye on his people. And the Bible says that the woman fled into the wilderness. When she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So for 1260 years, the genuine faith, the truth carriers, the seed carriers, had to go into hiding. And they went into hiding because of the great, great persecution that the enemy lashed out to try to destroy that faith that was given by our Savior to save the world. Well, in Bible prophecy, you know that the a day equals a year. So from 538 to the year 1798, the genuine faith was in hiding. And we know that through the, that time, there were many faithful who would give their lives for the truth. They would sacrifice anything to follow the dictates of their own conscience concerning the salvation that had been brought by Christ. And so, that continued on throughout the Dark Ages until finally after 1798, the persecuted faith would come out of hiding. And you and I know that the woman uh, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness 
into her place. And so it was. Throughout the dark ages, the uh, people of God who carried the faith, who trusted in God, who believed in obeying God according to what he had written, were haunted, chased, mocked, tried, persecuted, killed, all for the word of God. Remember one family in England. They were brought to trial because they dared to teach their little girl how to say the Lord's Prayer in English. And because they taught the girl to say the Lord's Prayer in English, those parents were burned at the stake. Terrible persecution that took place in the Dark Ages. But God said that the truth would come back to make the final contest between truth and error. And so God did. And uh, God identified those people again with having the faith of Jesus and the commandments of God. Now, those two elements or those two qualities are still the remaining qualities that the Lord holds up to identify the true faith. And so, from the time that the genuine faith was to come out of hiding, uh, it was wisdom on the part of God to raise that faith up in the most prosperous country of our times, the United States. And today, you can buy a Bible any place. Is that true? If I were to ask you, how many of you have more than one Bible in your home? What would you say? I think all of you would say, oh, i got more than one Bible. Is that true? And there's so many different versions of the Bible. And I want to say this to you, with all due respect to those who have done work in translating the Bibles, you need to be careful that you don't assume that all the Bibles have the same truth. What did I say? You need to be careful. Because if the enemy could not succeed in destroying the Bible, he will succeed by destroying its influence simply by translating it in a way that God did not intend. You hear what I'm saying? And so I'm not somebody who's going to tell you, you don't, don't read this book and don't read that book. But for the sake of study, for the sake of study, be careful what you use. All right? 200 years plus have passed since the time that the faith, genuine faith, was to rise again and shine with those two qualities. And then in the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, 13 and 14, God warns us about a great decoy. And that decoy is one. But in chapter 14, God warns us about decoys. Now, Perhaps you have not seen it this way. But in chapter 14, the first angel's message was preached and had its initiation of its preaching in 1844. 
during the great revival that took place here in North America. But then the second message followed the first message. Babylon has fallen. It's fallen. That great city. And most of us then assume that this is, of course, speaking about uh, the beast. But I want you to uh, take note that God is not just warning you about the beast. God is warning about Babylon as well. And Babylon is not necessarily the beast. Babylon has to do with a great, great confusion that will come into the world. Of course, you know that the word Babylon is derived from the word Babel. Is that correct? And uh, the reason why the word Babel is used is, and we still use that term today, oh, he's just babbling. We use that term, don't we? How many of you have used that term? Oh, he's just babbling. Wives use it with their husbands. Right? Is that true? How many wives have said, oh, he's just babbling? Any of your wives? None of one of you want to raise your hand. But it means simply that you're uttering something unintelligible. Correct? Something that no one can understand. He's just babbling. So the word babble has to do with confusion. And Babylon represented a woman, a figure which is used in the Bible as a symbol of a church. But listen. Babel actually began with Nimrod. Is that correct? And when it began with Nimrod, uh, the Tower of Babel was established and God confused their languages. Now, I should tell you that that's the first gift of tongues reported in the Bible. Acts chapter 2 is not the first list that lists the gift of tongues. God is the one that gave the gift of tongues in the Tower of Babel. Did you know that? And God did it to do what? To confuse them. To separate them. Because they were trying to establish a formidable religion that would be anti-God. And God did not want that for the salvation and sake of, of his children. So God confused them. And uh, languages then became a means of separating people. And it still is true today. You can go to some places and you don't speak the language, you're in trouble. I remember I went one time to a particular country, I couldn't speak the language. And uh, my wife and I were trying to figure out the train uh, book. And it was in their language. So we went to a booth that said information. And we said, can you help us? And the immediate response was, no English. So... So we're going to have to figure this out ourselves with the help of the Lord. So we figured out how to get out of that country as fast as we could. And we headed toward Switzerland. As soon as we got into Switzerland, people speak different languages there. And it was okay. You could speak English. We could figure out where to go when we couldn't figure out the book. You understand? So languages still separate people. Isn't that true? Yeah. But languages can also unite people. And it's interesting that the English language today is the language that's uniting people around the world. You can go any place in the world and somebody will talk to you in English now. 
And by the way, the country where I was, they could speak English. They just chose not to. They thought Americans were arrogant. We go to your country, we learn English. You come to our country, you must learn our language. All right. So, Babylon then is said to be the mother of harlots. By her daughters must be symbolized what? Churches that cling to her doctrines and traditions and follow her example of sacrificing the truth and the approval of God in order to form an unlawful alliance with the world. Friends, Babylon, the state of Babylon and the daughters of Babylon are the Protestant denominations that are so multiplied in numbers that it has confused the world. And while it is true that there's an attempt to reunite all the Protestant denominations with the Catholic faith, the truth is that they're not uniting based upon obedience of the word of God and the, and the faith of Christ, not in Christ, the faith of Christ. And that is creating such a confusion in the world that people think that it is a good thing to unite because we need to be one. But friends, unity for the sake of oneness is not what Christ wants. Unity for the sake of truth is what Christ wants. Because Jesus did not say, you shall be one, and the one will make you free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall one make you free. And he also established the fact that heathens can be one together. Isn't that what he said? He said, uh, you know, you folk need to love different than the heathens because they are one in harmony, helping each other. So you know that a thief who, is, who wants to rob, who does he want to unite with? Another thief. They become one. Isn't that true? So becoming one is not what saves you, even though if you are in the true Christ, you will become one. But oneness is not necessarily what God wants to do. Listen, there was a, a uh, what is called the promise keepers in a meeting down in Atlanta. And it was filled with, with thousands of men. And the leader that particular day got up and said, at the count of three, I want you all to shout your particular denomination. And so they said, one, two, three. And everybody yelled out their particular denomination. Baptists and Southern Baptists and Church of Christ and all of those at the same time. And he said, what does that sound like? Well, they all looked at each other and it sounded like Bedlam. Now he said, now on the count of three, I want you to call, shout out Jesus, all right? So he said, one, two, three. And everybody shouted out Jesus. Then he said, now what does that sound like? Well, that sounds like unity. You understand? And the people there fell for it. But that's not what Christ is calling for. Christ is calling for people who turn back to the truth as it is in Christ. Turn back to what? To the truth as it is in Christ. Now, it is a simple thing to understand this. The message of Revelation 14 announcing 
the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become what? Corrupt. Since this message follows a warning of the judgment, it must be given in the last days. Therefore, it cannot refer to the Roman church alone, for that church has been in a fallen condition for many centuries. I study with people all the time. And it's amazing how many different ideas are out there that people think come from the Bible. I had a lady one time. I was a pastor downtown, down south yonder in Georgia. And a little old lady came to me and she said, little pastor, she said, I have a question for you. I said, what's that, sister? She said, where in the Bible is it found that a crowing hen and a whistling woman is an abomination unto the Lord. You understand, hens don't crow. What crows? Roosters. So where in the Bible can you find that a crowing hen and a whistling woman is an abomination unto the Lord? And I said, that's in the book of Hezekiah. She said, Hezekiah. Oh. Then she said, Where's Hezekiah? I said, that's the point, sister. It doesn't exist. She, she laughed. She said, oh, Pastor, you're silly. I said, no, I'm not silly. I'm trying to give you a point. It does not exist. That's something made up by sudden men trying to keep women from whistling because they think that women who whistle are an abomination unto the Lord. So they coined this phrase, a crowing hen and a whistling woman it's an abomination to the Lord. Therefore, that would stop the women from whistling. What do you think about that, ladies? Some of the most beautiful whistlers I've heard in my life were women. <laughs> in fact, there is a woman that goes around. She's blind, but she whistles songs, Christian songs. It's beautiful. So, the Bible, then, is the center of attack. The what? The Bible. The sad thing is this, that that attack on the Bible also is creeping in where? Into our midst. Into our midst. And you have to recognize that if there were ever a time that you need to know the Scriptures, it is when? It is now. Know the scriptures for yourself. Be anchored in the word for yourself. Learn those qualities that Christ has delineated in the scriptures concerning the true believers. When he was asked, he simply said, there's one Lord, there's one faith, and one baptism. Now, Paul, who wrote this, was not suggesting anything else than that there's one true Lord, one true faith, one true baptism. Because he says that in his day there were many lords. In fact, Paul said, if, you, if you, somebody comes and preaches to you another gospel, then what you have heard, Galatians chapter 1, let them be accursed. So Paul says also that there will be many who will come preaching Christ. And Jesus himself warned that there are many false Christs that shall come into the world. So you need to find the true one. 
But where can you find the true one? In the Scriptures. Christ is not just some lovey-dovey name that saves you. Christ is a real person who has a real tenets of teaching that are calculated for the person who accepts them to find salvation. Here's the patience of the saints. We are there to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Again, those two qualities. And Jesus says, Other sheep have I which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock and one shepherd. Before the master comes, there's going to be one true group who follow the one true faith. That is not suggesting that I think that I'm better than others. However, let me say this. Some people say, who, who do you think you are, holier than, than, than us? I hope so. I hope I'm holier. Not because I make myself holy, but because if you connect yourself with the Savior, he will make you holy. What do you say? He said, be thou holy, for I am holy. So if somebody says, you know, I had somebody say to me, read this book. It was a big book about how to plant churches. And I said, I don't need to read that book. And he said, you got a close mind, Pastor. And I said, it's true. I'm supposed to close my mind to those things that are error. Well, he got upset because he was trying to intimidate me by saying, you got a closed mind. And when I said, you're right, my mind is close to those things that are error. I said, listen, when that writer points to a church that he has established as complete Adventist in faith and in truth, then I'll read the book. But that writer has no idea how to plant Adventist churches because he doesn't understand the Adventist message. If he did, he wouldn't be writing that book. He'd be writing a different book. We need to be careful that we don't get intimidated by people who try to put us in a box. We need to recognize who we are, what we stand for, what we believe, because it does say that you should have an answer for the faith that is within you. Now listen, are you having problems finding a needle in a haystack? I know a lot of people that I've met and uh, I deal with constantly on the plane as I travel and all that, who deep inside they have a genuine desire to find God. I was just holding an evangelistic meeting in Guam and the lady came and sat outside of the tent laying against a coconut tree. And I didn't know that she was sitting out there until one evening I, I found her sitting out there by the coconut tree. So I said, is this your, f no, no, she said, I've been here several nights. I said, what are you doing sitting in the car? It's okay, it's okay. I, I don't mind sitting by the coconut tree. I said, no, no, you need to come inside, be part of the family. All right, so she came inside. And then she went all the way inside 
she came every single night. So then she, uh, she discovered that I was holding a baptismal service. So she said, I want to get baptized tomorrow. Uh, Sabbath, pardon me. And I said, on Saturday, because I've mentioned Sabbath. She understood Saturday. See, I want to get baptized on Saturday. And I said, well, I need to spend some time with you to prepare you. She said, okay. So that was Wednesday. And my baptismal service is on Saturday. Okay? Sabbath afternoon. So I said, but I need to get together with you. When can we get together? She said, uh, well, we can get together tomorrow. Well, tomorrow didn't happen. So I called her and I said, we still need to get together on Friday. She said, yeah, we'll get together. Well, we couldn't get together. So Friday night she shows up all excited. She's planning to get baptized. And I said, well, we still need to get together. I didn't know how to tell the lady because I didn't know what she understood and that she needed to have an understanding of, of who Jesus was. And so Sabbath morning I preached and she came ready with her bag of clothing to get baptized. So I uh, met with her at lunchtime and began to chat with her. Turned out that this was a lady who comes all the way from Hungary, moved to New York City. New York City moved all the way to Guam, from big metropolis of New York, the little 35 mile by 10 island of Guam. So I said, what are you doing here? Well, she said, I came to work. Oh, okay. So do you want to get baptized this afternoon? Yes. I said, well, tell me, what kind of work do you do? Oh, she said, I'm a stripper. And I said, uh, excuse me? She said, I'm a stripper. I mean, I said, you, you mean the kind of thing that you do, taking off your clothing and all that? She said, yes. That's what I do for a living. And then she started crying. She said, I hate it. I hate it. Every time I'm going to do it, I ask God to forgive me. And then as I look at those people who come to watch me, I feel sorry for them. And I pray for them. This woman was the Mary Magdalene. Oh, she was the woman at the well who Jesus met. In our heart, an earnest desire to know and to follow God, but confused. Because she has been confused by all the different ideologies out there that are supposed to be under Christ. I prayed with her. I shared with her. And I, I said, Sister, what are you going to do tonight? Suppose you got baptized. What would you be doing tonight? Well, she said, I'd go to work. I said, would you be a witness to you, those people, that you have accepted Christ? She said, no. I said, what would you like to do in life? She said, I would love to work in an orphanage for children. I said, then let me put you together with some friends of mine that could prepare you. And let's pray that God will help us to find a place for you where you can serve God according to the dictates of your conscience. I praise God that everywhere there are people looking for God, what do you say? But listen, they need to find the right God. Correct? And the truth shall make you free. Now listen, in conclusion. The way to find a needle in a haystack is simple. You don't have to know all the prophecies of the Bible, even though they're important. Jesus said you shall know them by their fruit. By the what? By the fruit. 
A simple acid test. All you have to do is take the Ten Commandments. How many? The Ten Commandments. And if you want to find the right denomination, then take the Ten Commandments, go through them, and you will discover that many, 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 many denominations who claim to follow the truth violate the Ten Commandments and their teachings. Just by Sunday keeping, even though people argue that Sunday is the day that Jesus rose and all that, Jesus did not say Sunday would be my day of worship. Even while Jesus was alive, it says that according to his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And then Jesus, who inspired the Bible in the book of Isaiah, made it plain that the Sabbath will be kept for all eternity. So the one who gave the Sabbath to begin with in creation is the one who kept the Sabbath when he came. So if you're confused about the, the written council, you should be able to see it by the visible council, the life of Christ. And so Jesus made it plain. So if you find a church that says that they're the true church and yet go contrary to the Ten Commandments, you can just write them off. Because even though there may be wonderful people in that church, you're looking for the needle in the haystack. And the needle in the haystack can only be found through the magnet of the scriptures. And so, simple. And then if you have more questions about other denominations, because there are some who claim to believe all the commandments, the Jewish faith, for example. They follow all the commandments, but they do not have the faith of Jesus. So it becomes very simple. You narrow it down. It doesn't have to be so complex. If you try to check out all the denominations that are out there, you'll take more than your lifetime to figure out the right one. So it's easy. God gives the acid test. Find the one that has the truth as it is in Jesus. If their teachings harmonize with the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, then they're liable to be the right one. But if they contradict the first two chapters and the last two chapters, then they cannot be the true one. Do you understand what I'm saying? It becomes very simple for the honest at heart to find their way to the right one, to find the true faith. Now, you know in Revelation chapter uh, 13 and 14 that God identifies the false system. And you know that in the third angel's message, it uh, uses language as pretty rough language. Is that true? It says, those who accept the mark of the beast shall be tormented with what? Fire and brimstone, right? And people say, well, that's a terrible God. How could God do that? And I just want you to understand this, that the messages that we believe are righteousness in verity. Of what? Now, how is that true? Well, it's simple. When I read Revelation chapter 14 and read that last angel's message. I do not see God there as a God who's a tyrant trying to scare you into heaven by telling you to do a fire escape. You understand? Escape the fire. No, there's a message of love there. Let me explain it to you this way. When I was a little boy growing up in New York City, we had no places to play other than the schoolyard or in the street or in between the buildings. We lived in these tenements that were five stories high. And so there was a kind of a passageway in between and a space between the buildings where we could go and play without having to play in the, in the street. 
Because either you played in the street, and in those days the cars were much heavier than they are today, and the people in New York don't know they have brakes. They know they have horns. And so all they do is they push the horn, get out of the way. They don't put the brake on, they put the horn on. You understand? So we're playing in the street. My mother used to sit up on the windowsill watching us down there, and she would watch the traffic coming. And she would say, boys, viene un carro. There's a car coming. And so we'd get out of the street. Car would go by, and we'd go back in the street and play our punch ball or whatever it was, skelly or something that we would play. Well, this time, we were playing in, the, in, the, in between that corridor, in, in between the buildings. And we discovered two mattresses that somebody had thrown out. And we got a bright idea. Instant trampoline. So we put the mattresses one on top of the other and began to jump up and down. You understand? We were having a great, great deal of fun jumping up and down. But after a while, we just couldn't jump high enough. So we thought, how can we get more accelerated without jumping? We got a bright idea. We saw the window, first story window. So we put the mattresses against the, the building, went up the stairs, and then it was, I go first, I go first. No, let me go first, let me go first. You know how it goes, right? And so, uh, wee, boom. Boom, and we're all jumping out the window and, you know, having a great, great time. And after a while, what, what happens? Not as exciting as it was to begin with. So we got the bright idea, go what? Go higher. So we went up to the second story. And uh, now it's interesting that when you look from down up, it doesn't look very high. But when you're from up down, then it looks pretty high. And so there we were. Looking down, and those mattresses look smaller than they did before. And this time it wasn't, I go first, I go first. This time it was, you go first, you go first. Yes, so finally, it was my, all right, I got to be the tough one, you know, brave one. So I got on the windowsill, but it, deep inside of me, I didn't want to jump. Because I didn't know, if, you know, how hard I would hit and how far I would come off and where I would fall. So uh, my heart was just beating. So secretly, I was wishing that I could get out of this situation, but didn't know how. And all of a sudden, I heard footsteps coming up the stairway. And I looked down, and who do you suppose is there? My mom. And she saw me on that windowsill, because I was perched ready to jump. And she said, isn't he lovely, having a wonderful time? You think that's what she said? What do you think mom said? Boy, she described the worst scenario possible to wake me up out of my... She, she said in Spanish, Sinvergüenza! She yelled, you shameless one! Get off that window! And if you don't get off that window, I'll break your head! Well, my mom hated me. My mom loved me. My mom loved me. And because she loved me, in the moment of crisis, she could only but yell out the consequences of my decision. Revelation chapter 14, 
is not about a, a tyrant or a god who's looking forward to char people up. Revelation chapter 14 is a warning to all denominations that they're standing on the precipice and they do not understand the consequences. And God is yelling out to them, get off that edge. If you don't get off that edge, you're going to suffer grave consequences. With God, truth is essential. Do you hear what I said? With Christ, truth is essential. That's why Jesus said, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's not about trying to muscle people into. It's about warning. We are living in the final days of earth's history. People must find the right truth. If they don't find the right truth, they'll find a truth that will lead them to destruction. God wants you to warn the people to get us a preferences. If you believe in your heart that what you believe is the truth, then you cannot sit and hold it for yourself. You are a seed carrier of the truth and God wants you to share that truth with those who know not the truth. You need to let them that there are serious consequences if they do not get off that edge. A God of love like my mother, screaming out, the top of her head, getting me my attention so that I can get off from the danger that I was in. Do you believe that you have the truth? Would you share it with others? Would you stand to that and say, by God's grace, Lord God, help me to know love the truth, and to give the truth to others. Could you stand to that today? Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the truth which is in Jesus. And we have followed the truth throughout history in the Bible. And the truth that you have given to us, we hold dear but help us not to keep it to ourselves. Oh God, let us not keep the faith. Let us share the faith. And granted that others will heed the warning as they accept the truth in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.